You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. I heard that last week I uh, kept you guys here for a 53-minute sermon, and I know you loved every minute of it, but I'm going to try to move a little bit quicker this morning. We're going to finish the letter of 3 John today, and then that's going to be it for our sermon series through the letters of John. And then coming up next week, we're going to kick off a new sermon series through uh, the prophet Hosea. Um, So looking forward to that. But uh, today our business is to take from uh, 3 John verse 9 on down through the end of the letter. You'll remember that last week we were introduced to this guy Gaius, who the letter is addressed to, and it was really this first half of the letter was like a love letter between the Apostle John um, and his disciple Gaius. We speculated that Gaius was probably a young church leader over maybe a house church in the city of Ephesus, Um, but we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that he knew John personally, and John loved him, and John was addressing him in love. And we saw John commend uh, Gaius for several things, for marks of the Spirit in his life, on uh, areas of hospitality and stewardship for these traveling itinerant missionaries and preachers that were staying with him. Um, and so it was just this, this, this example that we could look to about like what a healthy, vibrant, truth-in-love relationship between a pastor and one of the sheep looks like. And it was really beautiful. We kind of uh, called the church to look at that as an example of how we might walk in truth and love with one another. Um, and that was really cool. But then there's this turn here in verse 9 Um, in the letter, where we're no longer talking about Gaius and the commendations of the evidence of life in him, but we're talking about this new guy that we're introduced to named Diotrephes. Um, Verse 1 opens up like this, I've written something to the church. This is the Apostle John writing. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. John's saying, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes is getting in the way. He does not acknowledge our authority, and he likes to put himself first. So I think that what's suggested, and I've written something to the church, is that John has previously penned something, a correspondence that was intended for a wider audience than the one that it reached, and that Diotrephes held up the dissemination of what John wrote. Some speculated that we're talking about the letter of 1 John there, that it was intended to be read by all the churches in Ephesus, and that Diotrephes was, was getting in the way of that. Um, some have speculated some other things, but the point is the Apostle John had something he wanted to say, and Diotrephes was either obstructing the delivery of the letter, or he was undermining the teaching of the letter. And the reason that John gives that Diotrephes was doing this is because, uh, for two reasons, he likes to put himself first, and he does not acknowledge our authority, the authority of John and the apostles and the pastor. So in saying this, Diotrephes likes to put himself first. We're unveiling this disruptive figure in the church, and there's this accusation that he is self-centered in mind and has a desire for preeminence, which is obviously contrary to Christ's teachings. When he said that he does not acknowledge his authority, we're implying that Diotrephes is resisting the authority of John the Apostle and perhaps the other church elders. And we're seeing that as he disregards their input, that he's disregarding the apostolic teaching on which the Christian faith is found. And that's how I want to open our time together this morning, is to consider the role of the apostolic ministry and the writings of John and the apostles in the role of the teaching of the church. 
You know, we, we say at Mercy's Door that the scriptures are our final authority in all matters of life and godliness, that everything that we believe in the Christian life, everything we know about Jesus, everything that we seek to follow flows from this. And what makes this wonderful is that it is the inspired word of God. We take this from 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, where Paul writes that all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable and useful uh, for admonishing the church, for building her up, for correction and rebuke. So when we say that scripture is God-breathed, what we're saying is that it's the very inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, that brings forward the words of Holy Scripture. But what is New Testament scripture but the codification of the teachings of the apostles? John saying they don't, they don't, that Diotrephes does not recognize my authority in what I've written. And so for you to do that, it would be like taking their Bible and flipping to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, Revelation, something John wrote, and then saying, I don't acknowledge this, his authority here. This is a, merely a suggestion, or this isn't true, or whatever. It's to question the authority of what the apostles have written is what Diotrephes is doing here. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we read uh, Paul write this, So then you, talking about you guys, church, are no longer strangers and aliens to God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on, listen close, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. And so Ephesians 2 teaches us that the apostles' teaching is, 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 is what the household of God is built upon, the apostles and the prophets with the cornerstone, the center, the, the most important piece of that foundation being the ministry of Christ himself. And so we might be inclined to, to reduce the authority and the, and, and the significance of the apostolic teaching uh, to say, well, that's, that's inferior to Christ. And I would say, yes, I, I confirm with you that Christ's teaching is the cornerstone. Christ's life, the very word become flesh, is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine and faith and belief and practice, all of that. But I also would say to you that the reason why you know anything about it is because the apostles testified to it and were there with him, and, the, and their testimony was either written directly by their hand, or as others wrote about it, it was, it was certified by the apostolic ministry. And so what John is holding out is the, is the high view that we ought to have of the holy scriptures, which, which are a, a huge part of the foundation of the church that you are a part of today. Diotrephes does something risky to in detrimental to his own soul and heart when he neglects and denies the authority of the apostles. So much so that he's disrupting the very letter that John had to write. And this is emphasizing, I think, a danger when our personal ambitions and self-centeredness overshadow the Christ-like attitude that is supposed to mark the church in humility and submission. That, and when I come up here and I start teaching, I've been saying this, right, like for a year, that the only reason you should listen to anything that comes out of my mouth is if it's really flowing from here, that this is the double-edged sword that separates joint from marrow, that this is to be our teacher. My ministry is one of reminder of what Christ taught, and we were reminded of that by the ministry of the apostles. So there is intrinsic authority 
behind the words of Scripture, and Diotrephes, to his own detriment, is denying that in this verse. In Hebrews 13, 17, we read this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and without groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so, obviously, this stands in stark contrast to the way Diotrephes is behaving, where John, who we have established in previous sermons, is a, is a shepherd and a pastor over this network of house churches in Ephesus. He, he is going to give an account for keeping watch over the souls of these sheep that are entrusted to his care. And Diotrephes is not submitting to this leader uh, as one keeping watch over his soul or as, though, as one who will give an account for him. And he's not letting him do this with joy and without groaning. And it says, what? That this is of no advantage to you. Now, generally speaking, uh, we, we're typically going to take a verse like that and we're going to start talking about why you need to respect your, your pastor or your teacher. But this is really much greater than that. This is written at a time when the, when the ministry of the apostles is still going out over the face of the earth, and people like Diotrephes and early heretics are opposing the ministry and the teaching of the church fathers, of the, of the foundation of the church, the apostolic ministry. And they're saying, no, I think it's this, and no, I think it's that. And you can go back and listen to other sermons to hear what some of those early refutations and um, heresies were. Um, in those early days, but there is this call for the sake of the sheep, for the sake of the church, for us to submit ourselves in obedience to the ones who are keeping watch over our souls. And when you uh, look back at the first part of Third John and really all of Second John and in First John, we've been holding out, I think, the beauty of, of John's pastoral shepherding disposition towards the people, I think which is highlighted by the fact that he's writing, apostles writing a letter to a single guy in the first place. He's not just concerned with, with writing down the doctrine like a record keeper, he's concerned with ministering that doctrine over the people who he knows and loves because he's keeping watch over their souls. The role of the shepherd is to fend off wolves, it's to defend sound doctrine, it's to keep watch over the spiritual health of the sheep. And John has, has demonstrated this at great length in his letters, but Diotrephes wants nothing to do with that. He's rejecting the authority of John. He is refusing to obey the writings of John. He's even inhibiting others from receiving what he had to write. And so here's what John says next in, in 3 John verse 10. So, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. And so Diotrephes is not just like getting in the way of his letter going out, but now it says that he's also spreading wicked nonsense against John and the apostles and the teachers, and that not content to just do that, he's also refusing to welcome in those who do, who are brothers to John and who do affirm the apostolic teaching, and he's putting out of the church those who do want to support the brothers and want to obey and listen to John. So this is a highly disruptive figure in Diotrephes. 
when he says, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, we're seeing John's readiness to rectify the situation directly, to enter straight into this conflict and to address it himself. And it's showing, I think, his role, not just as an apostolic leader, but as that shepherd who's going to actively address situations in the flock. And when he does that, he's loving the flock. One of the things that pastors will talk about sometimes in wisdom is we want to say we're, we're always concerned, I think, as shepherds to um, accidentally treat a biting sheep like a wolf or to treat a wolf like a biting sheep because sin besets Christians and non-Christians alike. And so there are times when as a, as a fellow brother in the faith that you're just, you got a bite to you right now. There's a sin that's, that's cropping up and there's a division that's coming up between you and we're called to seek restoration and unity and, and use the mechanisms that, that Jesus taught us as shepherds, church discipline, in order to bring about restoration between the brotherhood. But we're given different commands for how to address a wolf which is to put him out and to separate from him and to protect the other members of the flock from a wolf. And so it takes great discernment and actually knowing the sheep for a shepherd to know the difference between a sheep who's biting today and a wolf who wants to devour the sheep. And so John's saying, I'm going to come put eyes on this myself. I am going to address Diotrephes directly. If I come, I will bring up what he is doing. He's ready to rectify the situation himself. And this is the love and care of a shepherd. When he says talking wicked nonsense against us, he's making a serious charge against Diotrephes. And he's saying that he's speaking malicious speech. He's making false accusations and slandering John and the co-workers. And this could obviously disrupt the unity and the mission of the early church. And so he is uh, committed to shutting that down to testifying to the wickedness of the accusations. And when he says that he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church, we're seeing Diotrephes being this domineering type who's literally inhibiting the other brothers from obeying the Lord as they want to follow the teachings of John. He's domineering. He's refusing to adhere to the Christian principles of love and hospitality and the spread of the gospel. And he has, like John said, uh, he loves to put himself first. And some of you have been part of churches where you were under oppressive leadership that wanted to put themselves first, where they set the scriptures aside and said, I'm really something, and you really need to honor me and follow me and respect me. And this is why I need to continue to emphasize for you that the minute that I or anyone should close the counsel of the Lord and say that what really matters is that you follow me and my wisdom and my leadership and all of this, that you're in danger. And this is where it's time to bite back and to point to the authority of Scripture, which is higher even than your pastor's. Now, the verse offers a glimpse into issues that arise in any church setting, I think, where you've got individuals who can impose uh, their will, which is contrary to Christ's teachings. And I think that John's planned intervention is a model for us. You know, it's not just for the pastors, although it's definitely for the pastors. It takes some courage to do that. But it's also within the body that when error creeps up against you or when division creeps up against you, when gossip besets your ears— where, where slander besets your ears. You have a responsibility within the body of Christ to take, uh, to take Christward action in, in, the, in the sphere that you have to influence things unto unity. 
I am tough to gossip to. Um, I, I, I learned it from a, a pastor that um, discipled me almost 15 years ago, and uh, he had a way about him that when somebody would bring gossip to him, or, 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 it would be like, or it would be like cloaked in like a prayer request, as how the church likes to do it. Hey, can you pray for so-and-so, and here's all their garbage. Um, when you, uh, whenever somebody would bring gossip to him, he would start with, have you talked to them about that? And then if they said, well, no, I just wanted to pray about it, he would say, you have 48 hours to talk to them about that or I'll arrange a meeting. And then people would only have to have that happen once and then they'd never want to bring any juicy gossip to him again. And so we want to make it difficult for people to feel safe slandering and gossiping in your midst or or trying to build unity and camaraderie around the slight or, 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 um, or tearing down of a Christian brother. And sometimes you'll see this um, from the leader, like you're seeing with Diotrephes, where he is intentionally trying to divide from John in order to build a following for himself. And sometimes you'll see this among the flock, where they want to align their allegiance to one leader over another, and they want to kind of build this, this alliance type of thing where, where I speak poorly of one and I, and, I, and I speak sweet nothings over the other in order to gain influence with that leader. There's not room for any of that stuff within the church. Makes me think from a rivalry perspective about a a passage in 1 Corinthians that um, Paul wrote. In verse 10, he wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He continues in chapter 3, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And there's, this, there's a, a portrait for us there, I think, where we need to recognize that when we are inclined to want to wed ourselves to a person, to want to wed ourselves to a particular uh, leader or minister, we want to wed ourselves to a favorite online teacher or whatever, and we, and we, and we form these, these bonds where the allegiance is higher to the teacher of the truth than to the one who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of a downfall. It's the beginning of schism. It's the beginning of division. It's the beginning of conflict. Paul says, what is Paul? And I say to you, what is Adam? What is mercy's door? Except agents in the hand of God to point to the truth, Jesus Christ, and that we are all united in him by his blood, by the same salvation, you understand? So if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing. I'm going to talk, he's talking wicked nonsense about us. He's not content with that. So he specifically names the stuff that Diotrephes is doing in order to guard Gaius against it. This is an indication to me that Gaius likely is a local church leader, is that this could be construed as gossiping itself if he wasn't, probably not, but, but still to say, like, he's not just talking to a guy about, hey, that Diotrephes is doing that stuff, but that he's equipping Gaius with how to handle a man who is, who is uh, spreading falsehoods within the church, which suggests that Gaius had some responsibility to do something about it. 
And so John was saying, but I'm not leaving you alone to do that, but I myself will come and bring it up. Now, in um, Hebrews chapter 12, I don't want to do too many cross-references, we see an example of discipline within the love of God. And um, if you've been at Mercy's Door, you are aware of the uh, teachings of Jesus on church discipline, uh, where he says that within the body of Christ, when your brother is in error, you bring his sin to him in order that he may repent and that you may gain your brother. And that if he still will not repent, that you bring one brother, and you bring a brother, and the two of you go, and you appeal to him in his error. And if he still will not repent, then you bring him before the church, and the church appeals to him, brother, repent. And if he still will not repent, then you are to turn him out and to treat him as an unbeliever. And that's from Jesus. So, like, I know that church discipline, not everyone has any background with that, but if Jesus said it, it's got to be good, right? It's good for the church. Because one of the marks of a believer who has the indwelling Holy Spirit is that when he hears the truth, he rejoices. That when he is called into the light, that he rejoices. That when he hears of his sin, that he's pierced to the heart over that, and that the Spirit aims to convict him and to, and to bring him low before that in order that he can come into the light of Jesus and be freed from that sin. That's the aim. But somebody who digs their heels into the ground like Diotrephes was doing and says, no, I make much of myself. No, I make much of myself. No, I make much of myself. Jesus says at this point, it is, there's, there's reasonable question as to whether or not this is your brother. Treat him as if he's not. And even this is unto his restoration that he might repent. And so there is a loving place for discipline within the church. Many churches won't practice this at all. We practice it at Mercy's Door. I can't think of, all, and maybe only one example, where it ever progressed past bringing a second brother, right? Like, like I don't know, you guys probably don't even know that you're under church discipline, but that's technically what's happening whenever a brother, especially a leader, comes to you and names your sin and calls you to repent, and then you do. That was just wonderful, a wonderful example of church discipline that just never went any further because that's super normal within the church. Sometimes we're stubborn and you got to bring a second brother in order for you to believe, oh my gosh, maybe this really is sin. But sometimes it can get all the way to the point where it's, weird. it's like questionable whether or not this is really your brother. And Diotrephes is in that area right now. And Paul's saying, like, I'll be the second brother. Like, Gaius, now you know. There's the testimony that I've heard, and I'll come myself and we'll bring up what he's doing. And so he's obeying Jesus is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, John is doing here. But I also need you guys to remember that, um, that the whole counsel of Scripture tells us that when a sinner does repent, that we are to celebrate and we are to forgive. And for that, I want to flip really quickly to 2 Corinthians verse two, or chapter 2, verse 5, where we read, Now if anyone has caused pain, Diotrephes has done that, if anyone has caused pain, He's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So the sins of one within the church cause pain for the whole church, is what Paul is writing there. He says, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He says that for the brother who recognizes that his sin has hurt the brothers, and just by the testimony of the wounds that he has inflicted on the church, that he said that in itself is punishment enough. Because if he's, been, if he's brought into that lowly state over his sin, 
consider it done. He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And so this is the aim. Not that we could bring somebody low in order that we could dunk on him and be like, see, you were wrong and I was right. But that he would be brought low in order that he would be received the comfort of Christ and the care of the church to be restored into brotherhood. That we extend love and forgiveness because we know we ourselves have been forgiven far more than our brother has wounded us. Moving on to verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Now, I have to imagine that contextually when he says do not imitate evil, he means don't be like Diotrephes. But when he says imitate good, he doesn't mean be like Gaius. He means be like Jesus. You remember when uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in the Gospels and he says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say back to him? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And in essence, what Jesus is saying there is, if you're going to call me teacher, then you can't call me good. If you're going to call me good, you're going to need to call me God, because only God is good. And then the man goes away sorrowful, because he's not prepared to do what Christ requires of him, because he can't acknowledge him as Lord. But we learn something about Jesus, that it is only God who is good, and Jesus himself says, "He he is the good shepherd, Jesus himself is God. So in order for us to imitate what is good, we need to imitate the only one who is good, and the only one who is good is Christ. But this sounds like effort, and what I want you guys to hear is that the whole arc of redemptive history says humankind tried to be good and could not be good to the standard of Christ's goodness and found themselves condemned by their efforts to to make themselves righteous by their good works. And so if this can't be done in the power of our own strength, how can it be done? Well, by the one who is good taking up residence and the one who is not good and making him a new creation so that in the church, your good works are actually testimonies of the good one who lives within you so that you are actually walking in the good works that were laid out beforehand by your God in order that Christ would receive glory. And one of the ways that you can know whether or not uh, you are doing good works by the power of the Spirit or doing good works by the power of the flesh is, is the Spirit in you? Because sometimes we want to like measure this out like, man, if my motive's wrong, then the work's not good. If, my, if everything's not pure, then the work's not good. But I want to simplify this for the church. If you are a Christian, you're a Christian because God has taken up residence in you. And he's not like a summer dweller. He's not like, he's not like a winter bird where he like sometimes indwells you and then departs and then he'll be back next winter when it gets hot, when it gets cold. When Jesus takes up, or when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, he does that permanently. That's what makes you a new creation which means that everything about your life has now changed. It doesn't mean that you can't sin. What it means is that now when you sin, that is the old body of death that is on display. It's no longer you. It's no longer the testimony of the truth. The truth is is that your good works tell the truer story of who you actually are now. 
This is hard for us to believe because we think like, gosh, if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to act like a Christian, but we have to get the order right. It's why I preach it almost every week at Mercy's Door that you need to know that the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that we work from an identity and not for it. That you don't become a Christian because you did good works. You do good works because of the good one who lives within you. You've been given a new identity, and your good efforts flow from it. That's what it means to imitate good. It's just to walk in conformity to the image that you are being transformed into, not by the strength of your own power, but by the power of God himself. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2 says this, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Listen to the order. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Not be imitators of God in order to become beloved children. Since you are beloved children, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ, past tense, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The Apostle Peter says the same in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So the one who is called to imitate good is the one who has already been the recipient of the good work of Christ Jesus. Do you understand this? Because it is a spiritual slavery for you to invert this and to think that I can make myself a son of God, a child of God by imitating him. That I can make myself worthy of Christ's sufferings by following his example. No, the testimony of scripture says we imitate God as his beloved children, that we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that we imitate Christ because he has suffered for you and left you an example. This is what Christian imitation of love looks like. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, new guy, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So we see a new guy, Demetrius, and I gotta imagine this is one of the guys that uh, Diotrephes is saying, don't listen to that guy, put him out, don't receive him. And John is pushing back and saying, no, Demetrius is legit. Demetrius is one of us. Demetrius is walking in the truth. He's got a good testimony from all the brothers. We're adding our apostolic testimony that this is a brother. And there's the testimony from the truth itself, he writes, which, of course, is Jesus. He says it is evident within, uh, within Demetrius himself that Christ is in him. And so don't listen to diatrophies. And sometimes I think that we need to take off some of the influences because everyone is always trying to tell you who everyone else is, aren't they? Like, Every denomination has claims about every other denomination. Every teacher has claims about every other teacher. And, and we need to have discerning ears and eyes. But discerning what? Do we want to select, like, the counsel of some, like, guy that you don't know to tell you, like, is this my brother or not? Or is the, or is the presence of Christ evident in a brother? Like, do you have eyes to know who your brother is? Do you have eyes to know who your sister in the faith is? Can you tell the presence of Christ in a person? Can you identify the presence of Christ in you? Because I'll tell you, the, 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 the answer is normally no. 
I only know this because I'm in gospel community with you guys, where sometimes we ourselves can be so low because we're looking for evidence of life, evidence of life, always wanting to, seeking that, that assurance that John talked about in 1 John, evidence that, that the Holy Spirit is in me, that I have been made a new creation. And a lot of times it's the brother next to you who can see it more clearly than you can. And so we talked about the role of the church in building up the testimony of Christ by, by, by sharing with one another the victory that we are seeing Christ having in the, in the different people's lives among you. Well, that's kind of what John's doing here. He says, Demetrius has the good testimony from everyone. People have peered in, and they are testifying to evidence of new life in him. And I've seen it myself as an apostle. This is a brother. And I bet you that Demetrius loved to hear that. But the biggest testimony is from the truth itself. It is evident in Christ himself who belongs to him. Now, as he's contrasted to Diotrephes, I think that we do have to acknowledge that reputation at some level matters. Otherwise, it wouldn't be like a requirement for elders. Like if you, think, if you look at the, the, the qualifications for a pastor, um, Scripture says that he needs to be above reproach, which is like, that's like a horrifying requirement. Like, what does that even mean? But reputation matters in the body of Christ. Like the testimony of your life, the outward expression of the inward change matters. And if that wasn't true, then Jesus wouldn't say, after three efforts of bringing the man to repentance, treat him as an unbeliever. Because he's saying, at, like at a certain point, a failure to show evidence of life leads you to the natural conclusion that there's no life here. And one of the primary evidence of life is not so much uh, persistent good works, but but, uh, but good works accompanied by repentance for our sin and our failure. Because for the Christian, both of these point to the glory of Jesus. When the Christian walks in the good works that the Lord lays out for him, he gives testimony to the goodness of God in his life. When the Christian fails and then clings to Jesus in the gospel, he gives testimony to the goodness of God in his life. But in his failure and in his good works, the Christian life is a testimony of the one who saved him. The one who is only marked by his good works and his reputation, but has no, but has no reputation for, for repentance, may be his own God. The one who is always repentant, but has no evidence of new life, may just be feeling like one of these guys, we we've been talking about him, who have this, this uh, new type of righteousness where we say, I am made right by my lowly state. That it's, not, it's not that I need new life, it's just that I need pity. And so I just feel bad for myself all the time, but I don't actually feel contrite before God. There's a difference between feeling guilty and feeling contrite before God. If that point hits you funny, I'd love to talk to you about it. But we need to be people who the testimony of our lives, by our, whether our good works or by our actual repentance— where we confess our sin before God, bring ourselves low, and then turn from it, both testify to the truth that we have a good testimony that Jesus Christ is in us. Verse 13 and 14, two at a time. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. This, of course, implies that John had more to say and advice to give than what he's writing in this little letter. 
but he wants to keep the conversation going in person instead of detailing everything in writing. He says, I hope to see you soon. We'll talk face to face. It shows the value that John as a pastor places on that personal interaction and his desire for conversation and fellowship and all the rest. And I think it just highlights the approachability of John. And that's an approachability that we want to have at Mercy's Door. Like if we only ever talk, like, like well, I guess we can compare like a sermon to the letter to Third John, right? Like if we only ever talk when I've got a microphone on my ear, then there's not an approachability there. It's, that's a one-way relationship where as much as I, as I labor in prayer and effort to make this personal to you from my love for you and to think about how can I minister to you from this spot, that's not really relational. Relationship happens after the fact. We're across from a table. You and I know one another, and we're actually talking about you, and you're actually talking about me, and we're working this stuff out. Well, it's the same in gospel community. Now, at Mercy's Door, we have four shepherds, and sometimes, oftentimes, that still doesn't feel like enough because you need enough shepherds that everyone can feel known or, or in a or true relationship with at least one of them, that you can be truly known by the leaders. John valued that. I'm going to come talk to you in person, he says. That's not, of course, to undermine the value of written communication, but it didn't replace the face-to-face. When I see, let's talk face-to-face, when I say, I'll see you soon, I'm seeing a picture of personal affection, of genuine camaraderie, and of warmth, a testament to intimacy that ought to exist in the fellowship of believers. When he ends his, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but he ends his letter with, peace be to you, verse 15, the friends greet you, greet the friends, each by name. The peace be to you is, of course, a simple and profound blessing. There's more than a formality there because the peace that is yours is the peace that is found in Christ Jesus alone. You have been given peace with God and man by the blood of the cross, for you were once enemies of your God because of the sins which separated you from him and his holiness. Christ came as a mediator between God and man, and he lived the life that you were meant to live, and he died the death that you deserve to die, and then he took up his life again, resurrecting from the dead three days later, and he appeared before a great cloud of witnesses, ascended before a great cloud of witnesses, and he reigns today at the right hand of the Father, inter- interceding for you as your great high priest. You have peace with God on account of Christ Jesus. And he wants to apply that peace. He wants the people, the church, you guys, to apply that peace to the friends. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. By name. I think that's really beautiful. I was, I, I pulled up this quote from Eugene Peterson, a late pastor who was a really, really tender guy. He once said, a congregation is composed of people who, upon entering a church, leave behind what people on the street name or call them. A church can never be reduced to a place where goods and services are exchanged. It must never be a place where a person is labeled. It can never be a place where gossip is perpetuated. Before anything else, it is a place where a person is named and greeted, whether explicitly or implicitly, in Jesus' name. I watched this documentary where he was featured called Godspeed, The Pace of Being Known. It's a sweet little documentary. I recommend it if you're prone to a fast 
pace life. And in it, uh, Eugene says something to the effect that he used to go to this church where the pastor never really knew his name. And so whenever he would greet you in the lobby, he would say, hey, brother, how are things with your soul? And he's like, I was, he always was asking about my soul, never my name, you know, and it always bothered me. And I think that there's something really beautiful about knowing a person's name, because what makes you a Christian is that your name has been written by God in the book of life. He's got your name inscribed on his hand. You have been named in, in, in eternity by God. You've got a seat, like with a placard, at the kingdom banquet table in heaven, and that's what makes you a Christian. And so one of the ways that we express that named, personal, specific love of Jesus is when we actually know and love one another, and we apply the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus to the actual people who are around us. And I think that the highlight of that for me is in the gospel itself, the incarnation of Christ Jesus, and I'm going to try to land the plane here is that when we, I think what we see in the overall testimony of this relationship between John and Gaius and Diotrephes and Demetrius and, and the traveling itinerant preachers and really all the letters of John is you start to see this incarnate love, this embodied love. It's not up here. It's not in here. It's right here. It's tangible with the hands. They're walking together in a way that where everything changed, where all the dividing walls of hostility were torn down, and where there was a new type of love that was, that was made available to the church because it was purchased in an irrevocable way by Christ Jesus. We talked about it throughout the sermon series through the letters of John, how all the other forms of love that the world calls you into, they fail ultimately, but this incarnate love, God become flesh, like when, when, when John talks about, I want to come see you face to face, I mean, we worship a Jesus who came to greet us face to face. I, I, don't, I don't know how to make this doctrine any higher for you. Your God became human flesh. He emptied himself of his glory. He became a baby in a manger, born through a womb and a birth canal, and then he walked on this earth and breathed in this oxygen and spoke words to reverberate through this air. He knew people by name. He called them by name. He washed their feet. He looked them in the eyes. He tenderly cared for them. One of my favorite stories in, the, in one of the Gospels is when uh, Jesus is, is traveling into the area of the Decapolis, and he's confronted by a demoniac, and he does this incredible miracle where he casts these demons out into a herd of pigs, and the demons uh, uh, kind of possess these pigs and thrust them over a cliff to, like, their demise. And the people from this region, like, see this show, and they're like, can you please leave to Jesus? But the demoniac is like, can I please go with you? And there's these, like, two, two groups, the people who were scared, and they were like, get out of here. And then the person who was liberated, who said, can I please be with you? And Jesus said to the demoniac who he had just liberated, no, I want you to stay and go tell your friends what has happened for you on this day. And then sometime later, Jesus returns to the area of the Decapolis, and when he gets there, these people who had formerly asked him to depart are now lined up with their sick, bringing people to him to be healed. And one of these guys is a guy who is deaf and has a speech impediment. And Jesus pulls him aside, and in this interaction, what it says that Jesus does is he touched his tongue, like he spit on his fingers, and then he like gives the guy a wet willy, 
and grabs his tongue, and the guy receives his hearing, and his speech is restored. But something that I read, which makes this story really sweet to me, is that in the ancient Near East, during this time, they believed that saliva, human saliva, had medicinal purposes. And so this guy who was deaf was very likely being communicated to by Jesus before he healed him. And when he touches his tongue, touching the saliva, he's indicating, I'm going to heal you, tongue to ears, tongue to tongue. And the man understood what was going to happen to him. But think about how close you got to be to do that. To get my fingers in your ears, I got to be right here. Jesus is right here. We're not just talking about a general incarnation. We're talking about a right here incarnation of Jesus. That's what we mean when we say that the church is face-to-face with God and lives face-to-face with one another, glorifying God right here. He came for us. He took on flesh for us. This is a God who made himself known. The gospel is exalted in this text when we see humility and service of Jesus Christ in contrast to diatrophies, when we see true Christian leadership on display of which Christ was the highest example, laying his life down for the sheep. We see the power of face-to-face fellowship in God becoming flesh for us. We see the power of Christian unity and love purchased for us by the blood of Christ, and we see true peace, the only lasting peace purchased for us in Christ Jesus. His characteristics are on display. His gospel is on display in this little mini theater between John and Diotrephes and Gaius. It's such a small thing. I love the books of scripture that seem to be about little nothings, like the apostle and this guy, Gaius, little tiny house church, and this guy, Diotrephes, and what is on display but the love of Christ and the way that this conflict is handled. We see Christ's humility on display. We see his service on display. We see him as personal revealer of truth. We see him as the source of unity and peace and the very lover of mankind, not just in this letter, but in each of the three. The body of work that John left for the churches in Ephesus and ultimately for us, they testify to the function of the church to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to point one another. It's like that, that text that I read to you about this, this, this temple that is being built on the foundation. Guys, that's you. You guys are bricks in a temple, this tapestry that is being built, this, this remnant that I'm always talking about that's being gathered in by Christ himself. He purchased you and he is building for himself a temple that he himself indwells for the sake of his name. That Christ in humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, has now been lifted up and is exalted above the name of of, of every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's our king and your purpose. You, church, temple to the living God, is to exalt him. On the face-to-face, one-on-one level, like between the apostle and Gaius, and at the broad level, like the testimony of Scripture sent out for the masses over the generations. It's no small matter, and I'm so grateful for the testimony and ministry of John. I'll leave you with a quote. It was two quotes. I couldn't choose. Stephen Sharnock said that a proud faith is as much a contradiction 
as a humble devil. If we, this is for this specific letter. There's just no room for it, guys. If you really understood the lengths to which God had to go to rescue you, then you've got nothing to lord over your brother. And you've got nothing truly to divide over except Christ. If it's your brother, you fight for unity. If we get nothing else from the letters of John, it's to walk in truth and love with one another. The other one was from Calvin. He said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it's swarmed with many faults. What made Diotrephes an outsider wasn't so much his sin. It was his sin of rejecting the words of God through the apostolic teaching, setting himself outside the body in order to make something of himself. Sin within the body, and there's always room for repentance. Sin apart from Christ, and we're doomed. We're set apart. And that's the sobering reminder I want for you guys every week, that if you are here this morning and you do not belong to Christ, if you do not have his righteousness applied to you by faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation, if you are still trying to make yourself right with God by your good works, it can't be done. So today is the day to turn and to call on Jesus for forgiveness for your sin and to walk in the covering of his blood. If you want to talk to me more about what that means, there's nothing more I want to do. So come and see me. Would you guys join me in prayer?